0: We're moving to the third block of our conversation on Biblical Formation for Witness, Missional Hermeneutics in Context, and our intention in this session is to actually see how missional hermeneutics work, and uh, we're going to work with particular texts, Um, we probably won't get to all of them, we have more uh, charted out there than we would have time for, but we're going to start with our three New Testament scholars. Uh, taking us into this conversation about how does one interpret the text in such a way that one understands its original meaning, and its original context and its significance as formation of the church continuing that history this can lead us in any number of directions it's going to be, I think, a, uh, a very very stimulating conversation, maybe we ought to go ahead now and, dis- and distribute the texts uh, we're going to start with a conversation about Second Corinthians 5 and I believe uh, Dr. Bowings is going to open the discussion.
1: Thank you. Thank <laughs> you, Darrell. Is that okay? Yes, that's fine. Can you all hear me, though? No. no. no.
2: Okay. I uh, need flip it around. It looks like maybe it's upside down.
1: Did I turn it on? Maybe I forgot. Are you on? On the pack. Yeah. Turn it
2: on. It's on. Oh, it's on for you.
1: Hello? Can you hear me now? Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. So, um, I first of all, I want to thank Timothy and Thomas just for a rich morning. <laughs> and um, I just, was just sitting here taking notes and just trying to write as fast as I could. Um, thank you all both for sharing just your rich stories and of how God is at work in you and in your congregations. Um, so we want to begin with 2 Corinthians 5.11 through 6.2. And I I think I just want to read the text. So let's just start with reading the text. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we try to persuade others. But we ourselves are well known to God. And I hope that we are also well known to your consciences. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you an opportunity to boast about us. So that you may be able to answer those who boast in outward appearance and not in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ urges us on. Because we are convinced that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all so that those who live might live no longer for themselves but for him who died and was raised again for them. From now on, therefore, we regard no one from a human point of view, even though we once knew Christ from a human point of view. We know him no longer in that way. So if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. So we are ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making his appeal through us, we entreat you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. As we work together with him, we urge you also not to accept the grace of God in vain. For he says, at an acceptable time, I have listened to you, and on a day of salvation, I have helped you. See, now is the acceptable time. See, now is the day of salvation. Amen. amen. The word of the Lord, amen. So I'm just going to open up, and then my colleagues here are just going to join in and just chime in. But in terms of um, missional hermeneutics, a couple of things jump out at me when I read this text. First, um, when we talk about um, God was in Christ... Reconciling the world to himself. So, immediately when we think about missional hermeneutics um, and talk about God as a missional God, this passage kind of crystallizes um, what this mission is all about, right? And then we talked a little bit last night about um, it's not just about the saving of souls, but God is on a mission to restore the cosmos. And we see this here in this verse that God is reconciling the world. Um, to himself, So it's a, a plan of redemption for humanity, of course, but also all of creation. Um, and then so out of that divine mission of God comes the um, message of reconciliation that God has given to us to proclaim to the world um, that God has reconciled all of the cosmos to himself through Christ's advent. So a couple of things those are the couple of things that jump out at me as far as um, the mission of God. Um, another thing I think it's important when we think about the context of this passage. One of the things about reconciliation during this time, um, it's a, a bringing together of two separate factions or um, groups that were at enmity with each other. And usually, how reconciliation would work would be the offending party would be the one to offer the reconciliation. But one thing about this passage, it shows us that God makes the first move, so to speak, right? God is the one who initiates the reconciliation. God is the one that comes to us. Um, And I think when we look in the context of the letter as a whole, one of the major themes of 2 Corinthians, Paul constantly emphasizes God's agency. And you brought up, Shane, last night about divine and human agency. How the letter in the letter, Paul keeps coming back to God is the one acting on behalf of humanity. Because in a sense, we can't act. We have no power to act on our own. So our we respond to God, but God initiates um, the action. And so in this passage, we see it's God coming to humanity to reconcile humanity, to reconcile the world, because we really have no capacity to do it in ourselves. Um, yeah, I Do you want to jump in, Shane? Or... You know, the, well,
2: the keep, to, to keep... I'm gonna pull this out of I think the battery in this might be out of oh. yeah. oh, Can you
3: hear that? that? Yeah. 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 Um,
2: so to keep, to keep going with, with um, um, Lisa's insight about agency, which I think is really important in this passage, because um, in the contemporary theological conversation in the church, you, you're you constantly experiencing folks who were going to resolve this one way or the other, right? It's all about us and what we do. Mm -hmm. Or it's sort of, it's all up to God. God's got it. We're off the hook. We don't have to worry about the the problems in the world around us because God's at work making everything right. And one of the things I I so appreciate about Paul is that he is always operating with a really complex view of divine and human agency. He's holding those things in tension. And you see it in this passage, which... As you've so well pointed out, Lisa. I mean, this this is the this is the paradigm text for God's mission in the world. I mean, this is you don't read this text missionally. It, I mean, this does say what God is up to is essentially a mission. God has a mission. Mm-hmm. That mission is reconciliation. Mm-hmm. Christ is faithful to that mission, even to the point of death, and that death now makes that reconciliation possible. Mm-hmm. Um, we're reconciled uh, mm-hmm. to God through Christ, and we are. Called as ambassadors to go out and be about that business of mm-hmm. of participating in God's reconciliation in the world. So there's that. Comp- I mean, mm-hmm. so that it's God's mission. We're participating in it. There's that divine agency, mm-hmm. but we have a real role. Mm-hmm. It's not an empty imperative, right? That mm-hmm. that we are to act as ambassadors in this ministry of reconciliation. And I think this 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 is what this is what the church is. Mm-hmm. It's that place where those who put their faith and trust in Jesus, and been reconciled to God, um, are caught up in that mission and go out and participate in it, in this wonderful partnership. Mm-hmm.
4: Reminds me of a, a line from St. Carl. Um, <laughs> <laughs> who, um, speaking of... <laughs> can, can only be said at Princeton. Yes, I know. Not Karl Marx, Carl Barth. That's right. what I said. So, yes, okay. um, who, who summarizes the thrust of this passage as the church is um, both recipient and bearer of the message of reconciliation.
3: Mm-hmm. And,
4: and those are not two movements. It's one and the same thing. Mm-hmm. To have received this grace is to be now a messenger of it. Um, th- there's a line in here that um, it, it, it intrigues me. It's, it's actually the beginning of chapter 6. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain, and um, I think if we, if we sort of back out and look at this letter and the, and the situation that calls it forth, it, it helps to understand what would what would it mean for the Corinthians to receive grace in vain. Um, Paul is writing this letter in the wake of some serious misunderstandings between uh, himself, his missionary team, and the Corinthian congregation. Um, depending on how you put together the Corinthian correspondence and, and how you understand the end of this letter and its relation to the, to the beginning, It's um, it seems that the Corinthians are um, somewhat torn between rival versions of what the gospel is itself. Um, and Paul is writing this letter in large part to bring reconciliation between the Corinthians and himself. And um, in giving this vision of what God has called us in Christ to be, um, Paul is, is, I think, calling the Corinthians back to this vision of being not only recipients, but also bearers of the message. Mm -hmm. So for them to receive the grace of God in vain would mean practically that they no longer partner with Paul Mm -hmm. in the spread of the gospel. Mm -hmm. Um, He says later on in the letter, you know, our vision is that as the word of God um, takes root among you, that it will spread then to regions beyond you. Mm -hmm. Um, And so you, you see here the apostle engaged in conflict, trying to uh, shape a community's understanding of the gospel that will allow them to continue to partner. And there's a real danger here that they might refuse to continue to be bearers of this message. Um, And I was thinking of the questions we were discussing earlier, uh, Timothy, but how do you deal with conflict? How do you stand? Uh, This letter, Paul pulls out lots of stops, uh, rhetorical stops here. Um, Just a little bit later on, he says, you know, your affections are constrained, but we've been transparent with you. This is my heart. Now, be fair. I'm talking like the kids. Open your hearts too. Um, in a in a section of the letter that um, Dr. Bowens has written compellingly about, you know, Paul sets the conflict they're experiencing in in the terms of this cosmic conflict between God and and the powers that would rip humanity away from God. Um, so, so much of this letter. Um, I think, comes into focus when we realize that Paul's attempting to keep folks engaged in mission mm-hmm. and to equip them, in fact, to, to be uh, effective partners. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, he says, as fellow workers, we encourage you mm-hmm. not to receive God's grace in vain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This expectation that, yeah, you are our fellow workers, mm-hmm. and ultimately we're God's fellow workers in, in all of this. Mm-hmm.
1: And we had talked earlier about vision, um, and about, I think Timothy and Thomas raised that issue about vision in the congregation. And it looks in 17 when Paul says, "See, everything has become new." And how a lot of times, oh, I'm sorry. Can you hear me now? <laughs> yes. Yeah, really <laughs> yeah, so sorry. so um, I was saying about how Timothy and Thomas had raised earlier the issue of vision in congregations, and how Paul in verse 17. It's kind of like um, painting a, another, a picture for the Corinthians. See, everything has become new mm-hmm. and trying to give them a new vision of who they are in Christ. And I think so many times in Paul's letters, that's what he's doing. He's trying to give his congregations, his audiences, um, reorient, reorienting them around their new identity. And I think as pastors and leaders in congregations, that's often what we do, right? Um, you've come to faith now we're here to walk along beside you as you all said so forcefully this morning walk along with you in this new creation Um, and part of that is walking out together, walking it out together but also being able to see yourself in a new light Um, and as Ross pointed out the the context of the letter when we think about Corinth and all of the challenges of um, the congregation and living in Corinth the type of city it was and all of the political, social um, implications of living in that city, but how Paul is constantly reminding them of who they are in the midst of where they are, and that who they are is different from what's around them. Um, and so I think part of the missional, hermeneutic implication is, to, is part of um, revisioning um, or restoring, as Carlos talked about yesterday, restoring our lives together.
0: Yeah, is it over-interpreting... Uh, to say that in this epistle in 2 Corinthians Paul is enlisting the Corinthian Christians to, be, to continue with him the apostolic mission and he's equipping them on, on how to do that it seems to me that the, the, the theme of reconciliation is preparatory it's, it's shaping of the community already in the first chapter when whatever their problem was is resolved and reconciliation has re entered the picture they are now in a place to, to be a, a we with Paul, or to Paul address them as those who are carrying on this vocation. And, 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 he, and then you get all of these formative statements in Second Corinthians about the integrity of witness. We're not peddlers like so many. Uh, we are Christ's letter to the world, written by God's spirit in our hearts. I mean, you have passage after passage where almost every major theological theme in the gospel is brought into this we this is who we are, the apostles, and this is now who you are as you share this vocation. Mm-hmm. I remember when we were co-teaching this, we happened to have as a textbook, uh, a fairly recently appeared, uh, very, very scholarly commentary, more evangelical in thrust, and it was a surprise to me at least that nowhere in the entire commentary did the Second Corinthians participation in Paul's mission ever get discussed. Mm-hmm. There was no mention of it. The term mission was... Missing, of course, the term "mission" isn't in the epistle, but the sentness mm-hmm. of the community seems to me to be abundantly clear. But as I ask, is that over-interpreting it? I don't think
1: so. Well, thank you. One of the things we talked about in my Second Corinthians class. Oh, one of the things we talked about in my Second Corinthians <laughs> class is um, how later on in the letter, how Paul gives a, a concrete um, example to the Corinthians of what reconciliation looks like when he um, when they talk about restoring that particular individual mm-hmm. back into the community. Um, and so it's not just a theory. It's when we're restoring this person back into the community, that's an act of reconciliation. We are actually carrying out... Um, being, we are actually participating in God's reconciling mission of the world. So restoring that individual back into the community is a concrete act right. of reconciliation.
2: So if we could, at this point, I, I, um, um, I want us to keep our eye on Paul, um, but I want to get, I want to get Jesus into this um, conversation in the Gospels, and and it's the point at which I hope we can get some conversation going around this table. Um, so to to, to overstate the matter, to oversimplify it a little bit, sometimes people worry about uh, missional theology, in particular, mission in general, because it implies um, uh, a concern with evangelizing whose exclusive object is sort of to get people to put their faith in Jesus. Like this, So it's just, about, it's just about winning souls. We talked a little bit about this last night. Um, but in, in my view, it's re- really important um, that we have a really fulsome, a scriptural view of what it means to participate in this this ministry of reconciliation, because I think mean, sometimes in, in its expression in the church it becomes about proclamation only. So let's stipulate that witness, proclamation, preaching the good news, inviting people to put their faith and trust in Jesus, these are imperatives and these are good things. But you can't stop there, um, and you've got to you've got to bring this into conversation with the gospels, and, and specifically. Jesus' conception of the kingdom, I think. So Tim, this morning you talked about kind of the, the four major <coughs> focal points in your ministry are, if I'm remembering them correctly, spiritual development, social engagement, health awareness, and economic empowerment. Good job. <laughs> All, right. All right. And I want to I submit to you that that's a fulsome view. I mean, attending to those things. Um, is what it means uh, to participate in God's mission in the world. And I would submit, as evidence, Matthew 5, 1 through 16, and we should turn our attention to that. Um, so maybe we'll start by, uh, by just reading that. So um, this is a really significant... We're familiar with this text, which is great, but it also means that sometimes we get too familiar with it and it sort of loses its bite in its, yeah. mm-hmm. its ra- really radical nature. So this is the first sort of um, public recorded words we're getting from Jesus and Matthew. A whole bunch of stuff has happened. Jesus has been born and has been in the temptation in the wilderness. We've had lots of stuff from uh, John the Baptist. And then there's sort of the, the, the description of the beginning of Jesus' ministry. But now this is going to be the first time we're going to get some content. We're going to get quotation marks, as it were. Uh, and so Matthew could not set this more intentionally. Right? This is really important. This, this teacher whose birth is significant, whom John the Baptist is prophesying about, um, who, said, who got baptized and is setting about this kind of interesting itinerant ministry, what is this prophet all about? Um, and so this is what Matthew wants us to know. Uh, the first thing that he wants us to know. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to speak and taught them. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything, but it is thrown out and trampled underfoot." You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. No one after lighting a lamp puts it under the bushel basket but on the lampstand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. So I would submit to you that that passage ends with some pretty strong missional language. Um, You are to be salt and light and light. Out in the world, salt doesn't belong in the salt shaker. Light doesn't belong under a bushel basket. That's not what salt and light are for. Um, faith isn't supposed to remain within the four walls of the church. It's, right. it's to be sent out. And so how has, how has Jesus framed this sending out into the world to be salt and light? Well, with these very surprising Beatitudes. Um, and there are so many rich, interesting ways to read the Beatitudes and to kind of interpret what each of them means. Um, so the way that I read them is not the only way to read them, but they have uh, it's, it's, it works for me. Um, I see in these, uh, in the first four, blessed are the poor in spirit, those who mourn, those who are meek, and who hunger and thirst for righteousness, to be... Jesus talking about those in the world who are marginalized, who suffer, who struggle, um, and points to the fact that God in particular um, has these folks in mind uh, in God's kingdom. In a typical kingdom, these would not be the leading citizens. In God's kingdom... They are not only citizens, they're valued. They're very near and dear to God's heart. The kingdom belongs to them. The mourning will be comforted. The meek, uh, those who can't usually advocate for themselves, they will become inheritors of the earth. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, which I read as those who, if you hunger and thirst for it, you lack it. So victims of injustice, they are going to be filled. They'll they'll see their uh, justice done. And then there's this shift. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So that God desires those who mourn and suffer and struggle and are in want to experience God's kingdom, which is life as God intended it. But that's not going to happen with the the waving of a magic wand. That's going to happen because there are those who are merciful. Mm. There are those who are pure in heart. There are those who are peacemakers. And by, by, by peacemakers here, you've all heard some version of this kind of, this is kind of a, a standard preacher sort of line, but it's, it's more than just the cessation of conflict here, peacemaking, right? Peace, shalom, right, is about being right with uh, God and right with my neighbors, kind of being in right relationships, um, here it, and, so, and so Jesus is calling forth those who make shalom. So I, I tend to understand this uh, in this way. Blessed are those who create the conditions for human flourishing. Those who make shalom. Blessed are those who create the conditions of human flourishing, for they will be called children of God. So what's happening in Jesus' ministry is this kingdom is breaking in. Uh, in that kingdom, unlike a human kingdom... Those that are struggling, marginalized, bereft of justice, uh, they are the leading citizens. And the way that they are going to be comforted and receive justice and mercy is that some people are going to respond uh, to Jesus and follow Jesus and go out into the world in Jesus' name and give people this experience. So this is, I, th- I think you've got to come into the, the Gospels into texts like this and put them together with all the, all the language in Paul about proclamation and evangelizing to say, sure, preach the good news, invite people to put their faith and trust in Jesus and be reconciled to God, and then be equipped to go out and give people this kind of experience of the kingdom to create the, uh, the conditions for human flourishing. So I'll end with a story, and then I I, I want to open it up to conversation at the, the table. In my in my work for the seminary a few years ago, I had occasion to go out to California and talk to um, a very interesting uh, man, uh, not a Christian person, Zoroastrian in fact. He had been raised in um, in Iran, uh, and uh, we had become aware of him because he named a Persian study center at UC Irvine after a man named Samuel Jordan. And Samuel Jordan graduated from the seminary in 1899. And so he said, why does this entrepreneur CEO in, in California, this immigrant from Iran, why did he name a, a school at UC Irvine after one of our alums? So I was going out to talk to him.
3: It
2: turned out that Samuel Jordan, who came from uh, Pennsylvania, Lafayette College, came to Princeton Seminary... Um, and wanted to um, uh, dedicate his life to missions and went to Persia. And he went to Persia, um, and he preached the gospel. Um, uh, People didn't really respond to that preaching, but he founded a school. Uh, And he he founded this school, and he was the headmaster of this school for something like 40 years. And he mentored, uh, and this not a Christian school, just a school. Um, uh, and was educating kids from rural areas in Persia. Um, He mentored a young man who then became the headmaster of that school for like another 40 years after him. Mm -hmm. So this man that I met, Fari Bors Masih, had been a student at that school, Mm -hmm. and it had been a game changer for him, Um, and uh, many others like him. And as he explained to me, he said, you know, this school is still going. It's called All Bors High School. And when you hear about the the kind of the the more uh, um, the, the the kind of the, the liberal intelligentsia in Iran that fights against the theocratic rule, those are the graduates of Wars High School.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, and so to this day, over a hundred years later, there's still this incredible um, uh, work being done by this high school, and lots of folks have gone on there. Uh, and he said, I wanted, to, I wanted to, um, to name a school in Samuel Jordan's honor at UC Irvine because he, you know, this great work he did for us. And he was really excited to meet me because I came from the seminary and he had never met somebody from the <laughs> seminary. And he said to me, we had, a, we, had a, we had an amazing conversation that started with him saying this to me. He said, so um, he, he, Dr. Jordan failed in his mission, but we are really grateful for him. And I said, what do you mean he failed in his mission? And Fariborz Masih said, well, he didn't convert the Persians. Nobody, nobody converted to Christianity. Hmm. Uh, and, and I said, um, Dr. Masih, would it surprise you to know that as a Christian, um, I view what, what um, Dr. Jordan did as incredibly successful, that, that, it's, that it's something that the gospel celebrates, that wherever human flourishing is advanced, that's something the gospel is for. Because we believe God created this world, and that's what God created the world for, is flourishing. Uh, and so if Dr. Jordan did that in his work, um, then we celebrate that. And he was very surprised by that. <laughs> and so that's how I think about the the Beatitudes and the call to be salt and light. That That when we participate, when we become ambassadors in this mission with God in Christ, that... That we are, of course, calling people to, to faith. We're announcing the good news, inviting them to join this community of fellowship. But it's more than that. Yeah. I mean, the reconciliation of the cosmos yeah. has to do with this kind of uh, 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 fighting for human flourishing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I think one of the hardest words to, to work with in a secular context is the word blessed. How does how does how do you help us understand what it means in this context? Yeah, I'll talk, a,
2: text, I'll, I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about that. I will say, one, let me say one more thing before that. So we use kingdom language to describe this appropriately. So, um, but that's insider language. I would say that if you walk outside of the Christian community and you look at this from the outside, we would say that this is the church's service of the common good. Mm-hmm. That's how that's the kind of the outsider language. And boy, I think we're in an age when. We need advocates for the common good, because it seems like most people are sort of have fallen into advocating for their own kind of interests or group or um, and it's harder and harder to find people who are advocating for the common good, beyond their own interests, to the interests of everybody. And the church has an amazing opportunity, I think, to do this. But here's how I understand this blessed language. Um, it's actually not a very good translation um, and this is I'm sure where you were, were leading me. So we often translate these beatitudes, blessed are, are those who do such and such, and it, it, you know, blessed are those who mourn sounds uh, funny. Um, I think it's even more deeply ironic than this, because the the Greek word here, makarios, actually means happy or content. Um, and it's Jesus alluding to the Psalms, like Psalm 1. Mm-hmm. Happy is the one who does not walk in the way of sinners nor sit in the seat of scoffers, right? And it sort of comes out of this... Uh, this this idea, which is sort of in, in wisdom literature, you find it in the Psalms, right? That Ashrei ha'ish, that blessed is the one, or happy, content is the one who lives um, in the way that God wants us to live. So, who obeys the law, right? If you obey the law, um, uh, you'll prosper. Um, uh, of course, later on in the in the wisdom tradition of of the Old Testament, um, folks began to question that because you don't always see a neat um, correlation between following god 's law and thriving in the world or not following god 's law and suffering in fact, sometimes you see the opposite so what what does that mean uh, and it means that one 's actions right don 't simply map onto one 's condition or salvation or whatever so Jesus is actually really kind of poking at that to make a provocative point uh, so happy or content are the ones who mourn why well because God favors them and is going to call disciples in Jesus name to do something about that mourning but it is playing with that, that language um, from the Psalms and from the wisdom literature but blessed is not a great translation there's, there's a whole word family in the New Testament that relates to blessing and this isn't it this is
0: so how does this text equip a congregation today for its visional vocation
2: so when I go talk to churches about this text, I usually title the talk uh, "Getting Your Faith Outside the Four Walls of the Church." Mm-hmm. So you you and, and it's I always pair it with Second Corinthians five. I mean you have to you have to you have to it, you have to let people know that they are called into this mission with God, and that this is what it looks like to be salt and light in the world. Means to bring the this amelioration of uh, the really terrible things that can happen in the human family and in the creation so as as you know both Tim um, and and Thomas were talking about about reading yourself and your congregation into the biblical narrative and i understand my own teaching to be simply that i mean you two were we're we're naming it in a beautiful way that there's there's not a narrative back then that was written in the first century and then we sort of figure out how to apply it that's actually far too wooden Mm -hmm. in your your preaching and your teaching you two are creating, you're weaving yourself and your congregation into the biblical narrative and creating one narrative there's one sort of great narrative about what God's up to in the world Mm -hmm. and it wasn't way back in the first century it's now and, and your congregants and you, you, as as pastors, are participating in that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, how about
0: uh, preaching, the formation of the community from texts like this? Do you have any reactions or comments?
5: Tim should go first. No, <laughs> 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 Give him the. A...
3: There you go. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
6: <laughs> so, um, I, I was thinking about this, and, and you wedded Second Corinthians, he's um, in Matthew five, uh, contextually about how how I would approach this. And certainly, you see the themes, of the themes of reconciliation and grace, and, and then you see here um, this this calling of of, of, of those who seem to at one point consider themselves outsiders. So from a contextual standpoint, when I would preach this, I, I, I would look at this in, in light like of what you said in Matthew 5 from, from this line of, of inclusivity. Mm-hmm. Um, the sense that, mm-hmm. that you first are called as I, I see Jesus, as, as he sat down and his mm-hmm. disciples came to him. Mm-hmm. The, this discipling, you know, this coming to and then this, this affirmation you too uh, are included in this kingdom called and, uh, and and then you, you know i worked down, and this is actually one of my particularly favorite um, texts this Matthew 5 because um, this, this 16th verse I'm uh-huh. a high schooler uh-huh. I had this on my towel on uh-huh. my works you know when I played football you know, and I loved it when people would ask me Oh my gosh, so deep or something. <laughs> you know, there's always this let your
3: light so shine. So calling, this, yeah. call this
6: inclusivity, now there's this responsibility. Mm-hmm. And so you you, you, you you cannot see yourself in a satisfied position. That you know, okay, I'm I'm included and, and, and I'm called from outside inside, but but there is this responsibility that, that your life should replicate what you have been privilege to encounter. Mm. Mm-hmm. And not so that it would point to your own self aggrandizement but then it would yeah, okay. shine my like own gospel. Yeah, mm-hmm.
3: yeah.
6: yeah I, I think
5: for I think for me, it's um, there's there's sort of a question that that just sits in my mind, and um, actually, I'm trying to get my mind around. I love this interpretation of the Beatitudes. I never I never heard those kind of Lumped together in that way, and my brain's going in a lot of directions that none of these people would care about right now because it's just it's it's great. But um, I do wonder, I do wonder, is a, is a question of this? And I wrestle with this as a pastor, and Tim, we I don't know if you do. Um, and some of this, when we talk about context, it, it, is our context. I, I believe that you're right. We are called. We, we're seeing here in what the the kingdom is, what's the common good, and we. we Talked about that, um, uh, and I, I noticed the John twenty passage here. And I love that kind of a, a Thomas, who I always feel like I always feel like he gets a bad,
6: yeah. rouse. It's like he
5: didn't believe a dead guy was alive. I don't feel like we need to castigate him for two thousand years uh, that he, he didn't get it. It's, it's understandable, but he has to put his hand in the wound, and and that's some of what I think we as a church are called to do in these places. Of we talked about. Institutional racism. We talked about uh, economic <laughs> injustice. We talked about gentrification. We've got these wounds that we are called to be the ones to to move into to 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 bring healing to to do, and it's hard work. It's it's it's, it's dirty work in, in a in a sense, as we see that imagery here. Mm-hmm. My, my worry in this part of this may be the PCUSA piece of it too. So I go back to my own context with this: is that um, my worry is that, is I hear a lot of People in our churches and even pastors talking, the gospel sometimes gets reduced to working for the common good, right. and it's like if we're not calling people to Jesus and teaching the why, it's just it's just social do-goodism,
3: yeah.
5: and 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 I think all of human history is on the side of social do-goodism is not enough.
3: Mm-hmm. Uh,
5: you know, we we we've talked in here before. I mean, we we it's not that the word. Uh, well, it, it, uh, many of the ills in our society, it's not that we discovered them in the last few years. I mean, they've been around for centuries or decades. Um, it doesn't mean we're any closer to shalom. So, th- this is the, the question I, I I have, and I think that sometimes the church is broken down around this is the evangelical versus social justice wedge, and you mentioned about that. I, my hope is in some of this missional formation that if we get to the formation part we can get to whether it's a liberal or an evangelical it's the why question that I was talking about earlier um, because if we don't understand it as citizens of this kingdom that we're called to do this work it, just, it probably is just going to become kind of good intentions and I don't know if that makes sense I, but I do wrestle with that Like how much are we calling people to this faith not. but when we work for the common good regardless of religion or Voting or anything else, we're called to work for the common good. But it's as a follower of Jesus yes. yeah. that that yeah. happens. I, d- I don't know. I d- I just pr- I don't even know if I'm articulating this right. But I just, yeah, I, right, just right, I just yeah. I wonder that in terms of the work of the church is how we sit in that tension. Yeah,
4: mm-hmm. I, yeah. I was I was thinking a a, a key a key phrase in the corinthians passage that that i actually understand differently having heard you this morning tim um (laughs) in verse 16 we regard no one Uh according to the flesh Uh from a human point of view Uh that that as you describe what a key part of christian formation that is to to bring folks in and say you are not who the world says you are you are a new creation in Uh christ you are beloved you are Uh you are in god's family that 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 also shapes how we look at. I look at my neighbor who's not part of the Christian community, not just my neighbor, but image of God, mm-hmm. um, one beloved by God, one called by Jesus mm-hmm. to be a disciple and hasn't yet heard that call. And and I think that, um, that that the why has to always be there. Otherwise, it's so tempting to turn people into to our projects. Mm-hmm. Right. There's a kind of yeah. uh, there's a there's a paternalism. There's a kind of Colonialism, an almost terrorism of do goodism yeah. that doesn't regard others as, as human beings whose, whose dignity and worth is there apart from my good intentions toward them. Mm-hmm. And it, it strikes me that you're helping to form a community who, understanding who they are, also come to see people around them differently. And, and in so doing, are the sorts of people who can be workers for shalom or people mm-hmm. who show mercy. Um, this, this um, he, God made the one who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might be, what does it mean to become the righteousness or become the justice of God mm-hmm. I think it's actually God's social program is this community of Jesus followers who in their life together and in their interactions with those outside the community embody and, and live out uh, the kingdom um, but I, I agree, the why, without the why, it's so, yeah. I, I don't think it's just because we we tend to, to twist things, um, but also because we, we human beings aren't, we don't have the power to confront these structures. Right. Mm-hmm. We, we don't have the power to get at the deepest, darkest things in our own hearts. Right. And so if God's not involved, the spirit's not working, then it's futile.
2: Mm-hmm. So yeah. I think you're right to point at this kind of this um this anxiety um, um thomas about about does does um kind of uh, looking at our responsibility with respect to the the common good if that becomes unmoored
3: uh-huh.
2: right from discipleship right mm-hmm. from yeah. being part of this mission of god um, and if I could venture out on the limb a little bit, I would say that in my experience right so only as far as my own experience, um, that this, this um, not being able to keep sort of Jesus piety and evangelism kind of in, in fruitful relationship to social justice and kind of action in the world, um, that this is a particularly white church problem. Mm-hmm. And you find, um, I mean, we're in the PCUSA, right? So you often find a kind of a you know, it's resolved entirely on the side of social justice and what you sort of believe and what you moor that to it doesn't really matter. Right. Uh, but in other parts of the white church, you find this kind of exclusive emphasis on kind of evangelism, saving souls, believers' prayer. I don't care about this world; it's all going to be destroyed anyways. It's all about heaven. It's all about the next life. Mm-hmm. I mean. I really feel like in many ways I learned how to read the New Testament and keep the appropriate tensions from the black church, Mm -hmm. where there's this amazing um, sort of piety and sense of discipleship and kind of evangelical warmth completely, comfortably, naturally, organically tied to social action in the world. And there's something really interesting to me about that. So it seems to me like this the missional theology conversation is one place for sort of white church folks to get over that anxiety and figure out yeah. how to keep that those two things together, yeah. which is the New Testament view. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think um, hmm. a part, like verse 18, um, right at the beginning, all this is from God. And so, all that we do for social, um, participating in that, all of that comes... I think we have to be mindful of where that flows from. And then um, to touch on what Shane talked about, as far as uh, black churches and the tradition. And I think if you look at the history, the origin of the black church, and keep I know the black church is not monolithic by any means. But when you think about the origins of it, um, how from the beginning, um, when uh, African-American slaves had to separate and go out and worship and pray. There was this sense that um, God is a God of justice and that salvation means more than just my soul being saved, but it also means me being free. And so salvation had political as well as social implications. And so I think throughout strands of the black church, you see that welding or meshing together, that you can't have one without the other. And so the social justice impetus of the black church is just an outworking of what we see God to be doing already. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. um, The freedom of our bodies is highly connected to the freedom of our souls, and you can't Mm -hmm. separate them. Mm -hmm. But if you look at the history, that's what many um, white churches were trying to do, right? Mm -hmm. Slaves, you can be saved, but that has nothing to do with you're being lit, um, literally set free mm-hmm. and then you have these african-american slaves saying no mm-hmm. i'm a christian we need to be free so there was from the beginning this welding together of social you say social justice um evangelism all of that was one thing and so even with the issue of reconciliation um think we talked about that a little bit earlier this morning, reconciliation between white Christians, black Christians, it is a conversation that we definitely need to have. Um, it's a painful conversation, but it's one, when we talk about bearing witness to what God is up to in the world, um, that's one way we can do that, Mm -hmm. especially in the climate that we're living in now when everything is so divided and so, um, Yeah, tribalism, all of that. But how do we as a church um, bear witness that God is making us one, Mm -hmm. Um, regardless of where we are, where we come from? But part of that means that we have to have the painful conversation of recognizing and owning our history Mm -hmm. and being willing to have that very hard conversation and being willing to listen to each other. So, um, yeah, I just want to kind of just touch on what you were saying
5: about that. Yeah, if I could, I, th- I really appreciate what you all are sharing because I think, I think as we said before, we're all formed by our, our context, not just our congregations, but our individual context of pastors, which shapes our ministry. And, um, as, as I, as I mentioned in kind of my introduction, I didn't, I, I didn't grow up in, in, in the church, um. Very much. Well, the reason for that was my parents, both from their own context, were reacting very much against the racism they saw in mm. the South in the 1950s and 60s. Uh, my dad grew up in Augusta, Georgia. Um, the Masters is being played right now, and I'm not watching it. I like,
4: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
5: be watching that. Right now. Yes, yes. Um, and, uh, and my mom grew up in, in Atlanta, and both would be, as I said before, you kind of classify yourself as kind of moderate to the left, mm-hmm. reacting against things that were yeah. mm-hmm. nothing to do with God and the, and the kingdom, in mm-hmm. the church. But part of my frustration when we don't make it about Jesus is when I look at them now, they'll talk about racism a lot.
3: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
5: They both live in gated communities, mm-hmm. they both don't have a friend that's not white.
3: Mm-hmm.
5: They both have a, a very limited viewpoint. That you know that you talk about things like uh, in our in our book club, we read a we read a, a book by Toni Morrison. But if you mention a word like reparations, there, You know, they, they lose all oxygen. Leaves the room at that point. And and I find that in in a lot of uh, contexts like that, you are going if you don't know Jesus you're not going to sacrifice, you're going to talk about racism and not say, I'm a part of a system that still does this today. And I think that's my, that's some of the tension, at least part of that common good, is I actually don't know that the common good can be fully even approached or envisioned outside of the, you know the, the realities of this um, mm. otherwise it just remains I think it again and I can only speak from my own context but it remains conversation at dinner parties mm-hmm. right? yeah. and, and, and then we feel good because it's like well I didn't vote for Trump you know and it's like well I didn't vote for Trump I'm not racist I didn't vote for Trump but it's like it's a lot deeper than that yeah. and I just think social do doesn't want to go there it's like yeah but I volunteered at a night shelter two years ago that was awesome, mm-hmm. right, and yeah. I can put my kids can put it on their resume for college mm-hmm. so that's, that's just the there's a radicalness, I mean, the, the Bonhoeffer, the kind of cost of discipleship mm-hmm. that we're, I think with Beatitudes and Sermon Amount. Mount anyway
1: yeah.
5: that, that brings so much of, at least for me, my mm-hmm. desire to, it's not evangelize, but it's yeah. to say, it's, it's, we've got to get a vision of Jesus in the kingdom
3: yeah.
5: if this can become
2: real yeah.
0: Yeah. let's let the, congregate, the conversation ripple <laughs> <coughs>
2: to the <coughs> congregation
0: yeah, to the con- <laughs> are there comments or questions or insights that anybody cross. Yes. Deborah is going to take, take over this point just I think uh, following up on the very
3: fascinating conversation that just kind of organically came up in, in the, the dialogue here, um, and the comment on the common good, and just the deceitfulness of that without the gospel, mm. and how in maybe a hundred years ago, uh, Jim Crow segregation would have been justified as right. common good. Mm-hmm. That's
0: right. That's right. <laughs> right?
3: That's From right. the human zeitgeist of the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, and, yeah, with, so... Uh, and I'm wondering, this is just a question maybe to some. Uh, I'd love to hear from um, everyone, particularly from uh, Dr. Timothy, Dr. Uh, Sloan, and uh, Bowens as well. But um, I'm just wondering if this tension that Shane, Shane mentioned that exists within uh, the white church um, of separating, you know, doing good in the community and uh, living out the gospel. Does that have historical ties to, I guess, simply um, self-justification, justifying removing the Imago Day mm. from people that mm. they were enslaved? Mm. Mm. So it was a need to separate those two things. Mm. Uh, so mm. I don't know. It's just a question I'm throwing out. You can go first, <laughs> on <laughs> Um. Just, or, or what's your view on that? Yeah.
1: that separation? Yeah, I don't know if I can give you like a solid, like, this is why. I'll just tell you what I'm finding in my research. One of the things I'm working on is a book on African-American Pauline hermeneutics, where I look at how African-Americans have interpreted the letters of Paul from the 1700s to the 20th century. And um, one of the reasons why I focus on that, on Paul in particular, Lee, because uh, early Christians used Paul to justify enslavement of African-Americans. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things I'm finding as I'm doing this research is that there was an explicit attempt in, in various ways of separating out the Imago Day. right? So. Um, African-Americans were not deemed human. They were deemed inferior. Um, they were deemed in many, in many ways through stories, however the gospel was preached, that they were not created by God. They were actually created by the devil. I mean, there's, so there are so many different ways that um, this separation of Imago Day was instigated. And so you see, time and time again, however, that uh, these enslaved Africans they keep coming back to lift and lift out the liberating power of the gospel, and um, and you know people often baffle, like why would they come to scripture when scripture was being used to actually dehumanize them and oppress them? But it's the power of the word of God that they were able to see a power in God's word that is so liberating. Um, that they could confront the illegitimate ways that the scripture was used. So um, I think for many, especially people in the South, but you also know slavery occurred in the North as well, um, but there were many ways that scripture was used to not see the humanity of people who were different.
0: Um,
1: And so... When you talk about um, social justice, when you talk about um, liberation, it was only spiritual, Mm -mm. right? It's only spiritual. It's about your soul, your personal relationship with God, but it doesn't have social implications, right? And so you see the struggle, these um, biblical battles over what salvation looks like. Like salvation is holistic. You know, African Americans would argue it's holistic. It's not just about me and God, but it's about me and my neighbor. It's yeah. about how you're treating me. Um, yes. And so, I think there is definitely historical connection there. Um, and even when you look at um, Martin Luther King's essays, his sermons, mm-hmm. um, when he's constantly calling upon the church as a whole, but especially his white evangelical brothers and sisters to join in this um, fight for, um, justice. And, um, I think it's in the letter from the Birmingham jail. Mm -hmm. I think it's in that letter where he, he kind of laments that they're not coming alongside him as they, as he thought they would. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that historical legacy is there. Mm -hmm. And I think it's something that the church has to deal with, own, and, um, come to grips with. Like, so we know our history. We own our history. What have we learned from that? Mm, yeah. And then how do we go forward? But I, you can't go forward without knowing your history. Mm-hmm. And I think when I go out and speak on this topic, I realize that a lot of us, black and white, we don't know our history. Like we know the broad mm-hmm. strokes. We know there was slavery in the United States. We know the broad strokes, but do we know the details? Do we know the struggles? Do we know these people's stories? And I'm finding that we don't. And so how do we move forward if we don't know what happened back then? So I think it takes a a robust, honest, open conversation Mm -hmm. about what happened before how do we learn from it, and how do we go forward? And I am going to say one real quick thing, then I'll stop talking. <laughs> but when Who's I was down? at Duke, I took a class on reconciliation. Wow. And um, it was offered by Chris Rice and I think Emmanuel gotangle at the time. And one of the things we did in that class, which was so powerful, we had to go around the room, and we had to name what we had been taught. And it was focused mm-hmm. on black and white relationships. Specifically, um, And we had to go around the room and we had to name what we had been taught about the other race. Whether it was through family, media, what have you been taught about the other race? And then the person had to write it on the board. So we had to not only say it, but we had to look at it and face it and one of the things that came out of that many things came out of that class but one of the things that came out of it was the common unfortunate stories that we had been told about each other Mm -hmm. and we had to own that that that, those things that you hear become actually a part of you and how you relate to each other so how do you I mean that's how the class started (laughs) so we spent the rest of the time kind of deconstructing that, um, all that we've come to learn and know about the other, and then reconstructing new relationships. Mm. And that's painful. I mean, it's a painful process because it causes you to own Mm. your stuff. Mm. And it's not always easy to own your stuff. Mm. Um, But I think it's part of the healing that needs to happen, and it's a part of the moving forward you have to own it um,
0: yeah so that's, I'll just stop. I, I, I'm reminded of the, of the way we don't know our history and how, how, yeah. how powerful and, and sobering it can be when we get some insights we've never had before years ago <clears throat> I took some American theological students to Brazil to attend a World Council conference at Salvador Bahia Brazil which is the great harbor through which most African slave trade came to Latin America, an incredible history. And that harbor where those ships docked and unloaded the slaves is still there. And the buildings, the sheds in which they received the slaves and classified them in terms of their value, Uh, we went and had a a very powerful service of reconciliation uh, at that place. But I will never forget being told, and this is just kind of a throwaway line, that the slaves would be brought in They'd be classified. They'd be marched out, and they'd be marched up this grade. And there was a little Spanish Baroque chapel there, mm-hmm. and a priest was standing there as the slaves went by, sprinkling them, mm-hmm. because they didn't have souls, mm-hmm. and they didn't get souls until they were baptized. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's—I mean—that's just embedded in the culture.
3: Yeah.
5: Yeah. This is this is going to date me, but um, <laughs> the, I don't know. Do you guys remember there was a there was a movie? Came out called Goodwill Hunting. Do you
3: remember, remember yeah. that
5: movie? Yeah. It's a. It's one of my kids would look at me like that's an oldie. Um, but they, <laughs> they, there was this scene where Matt Damon plays this genius right? who, um, and he's asked at one point by Robin Williams who plays his therapist, in essence, like who, who, who do you have a community with? Who knows you? Mm-hmm. Who he says, who challenges you? I think is this question, mm-hmm. and he starts going through these famous authors. You know, who all, and, and Robin Williams said, but they're all dead. Um, in essence, like, who do you have in your life currently? Which is what we've talked about here the need of having discussions like this, of reading the text together. And I think part of what worries me on Facebook is we think we're informed because we share an article or a post that verifies our viewpoint we already have, right? Um, I mean, social media has become weaponized. Yeah. And, um, and part of what we, we've talked about this at our, our church is that part of the importance of community um, is, is that so people, don't, people don't care what you know until they know that you care. And so it's like you just posting five different articles on Facebook and thinking you're making some sort of statement probably changes the world. Zero, right? And 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 what's even more disturbing it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't change you, right? It does we don't we don't actually grow and change through it, but we think we're informed, and so that's one of the places that um, I think I I was saying the same thing last night when you were talking about the need to interpret text together and do so in community and do so in the uh, the space of different voices and how. Um, there's a danger of losing that in a world where it's like, I, I do a Google search, I find an article that agrees with what I already think, and then I think I'm informed. Um, and that we've said it before, this same view sociologists, that we live in this world of echo chambers of our own self-righteousness. I That phrase disturbs me greatly, because I do that. And, um, and I like doing it. Right? Because it's like, I'm right.
3: That's
5: I appreciate you raising that because it does bring about the difference of kind of like in that goodwill, honey, the need to for Tim and I to do this together, talking to each other, sharing with each other versus the loss of that. So I I don't know if that's an answer, but I, cre- I share your concern and the need for intimacy in that.
6: Yeah, I, I, I think a couple of thoughts, and I hope I still stay on the street, i <laughs> <right laughs> Um that I, I, I do worry about our our fascination with social media right now and the lack of community that it creates and, and the, the sense of divisiveness that continues to to um, happen. Um, but but you you know when you get I guess a certain age I guess when you get forty you you start feeling um, privileged to romanticize the past. Yeah. <laughs> so you constantly tell my thirteen year old, you know, when I was your age, we didn't have certain- <laughs> uh, we had to write letters and, you know you want a certain message, you had to get up and go to, to Mrs. Johnson's house and mm-hmm. knock on the door, you know. And and that's all I myself doing that, but but I, uh, I'm now getting to the point with thirteen year old that's going in closing her door and spending 90% of her time on Instagram uh-huh. that I'm worried constantly about the images and the messages that she's receiving. Yeah. Now, now I, I, I work, I guess, f- feeling a sense of um, you know, trying to make myself feel better. But I take her to church and I, I pour in the word and I see her posting scriptures, but they're not going to alert She She did a scripture um, on her page, you know, and I'm saying, okay, good, good, good. Okay, that, that pushes back. But but making sure that, that I don't demonize it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
3: But I help her to use it properly
6: and understand the context mm-hmm. of, of of her of her um, her kingdom um, identity mm-hmm. and, and who we are as as believers. But then that's challenged again because I live in a gay community and I don't even know any of my neighbors. Mm-hmm. I and I'm an excellent neighbor and we can wave <laughs> each other. You know, yeah.
3: I'm
6: sure they're going to take yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. um, I I Yeah. But I worry and I, I struggle with that. Mm. Let me also say um, that how enriching this has been, um, and, and Thomas and I have been talking about our, our interplay, <clears throat> and, and how we've been able to dial. And I'm so grateful for the, the vulnerability and transparency of our conversation here today. For many black like Americans, African Americans, Latinos, who, who feel themselves sometimes on the outskirts, it's kind of like, how's this going to go if we walk down that road? Mm-hmm. You know, but the day has been, okay. And when, when he started talking, I was like, I, I said, okay, I'm, I'm prepared with this passive Presbyterian pastor from Austin. How's this going to go? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I felt like after meeting him for a few minutes, man, it's like, wow, this is my friend from a long time ago. That is the kingdom of God. That is who we are called to be. That is the relationship. This, this for me, has has concretized, I guess I can use that. For me, who we are called to be, what we should be, this new creation. Die for all. And then not only that, but then when we come into this community, we don't go and sit at separate lunch tables. Mm. Mm. What's happened here is so illustrative of our own responsibility as as Mm. leaders in the church and leading and discipling. Mm. And now we understand, yes, you're saved. You've been reconciled with Christ. Mm. Don't forget that means the community. And that does not mean you can ostracize
3: or disconnect Mm -hmm. There's a responsibility